0: When leaders spend time, I mean a great deal of time, look at the my four months, time and prayer, they become better leaders. They become more confident leaders. They become visionary leaders.
1: The situation might not ever change. It might even grow worse. But the one thing that never changes is who God is.
3: Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, your co-host, and we are flying through the book of Nehemiah and the leadership process. And Dad, I have two questions for you today. One is, in most of the episodes, you reference Derek Kidner. Tell me about that resource. What's the book that you're pulling those from?
4: Dr. Derek Kidner, who is now with the Lord, uh, taught at Histon, Cambridge. He was an Old Testament scholar, and he's written a number of books. And I would just simply say, jump on your search engine and look for Derek, D-E-R-E-K Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R. There's a series called the Tyndale Old Testament Commentaries, and he wrote uh, Ezra Nehemiah, two volumes on Psalms one volume on Genesis, and one volume on Proverbs. And he's written many other articles on Ecclesiastes, but that's the easiest set to find. And the one thing, Hannah, about Kidner that I love so much, we categorize commentaries in several ways. One would be exegetical or critical, and those are the thick, stuffy ones that are going to have German and Greek and Hebrew and Latin and French quotations, and they're going to have sometimes more footnote on each page (laughs) than text. I have some of those. (laughs) Right, that's the critical exegetical commentaries. Then you move to so-called expositional commentaries, which would be along the lines of a book that deals with the passage and maybe some illustrations, but it's going to outline the passage Mm -hmm. and then maybe have some applications. Then what I call devotional commentaries, Mm -hmm. which probably do not deal with problems in the text or complicated verses, but they're easy to read, reflective, inspirational, sometimes a little off the reservation. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and then there's a a category I call synthetic. Okay. And synthetic is the ability to take the whole picture and distill it with the theological theme, the historical setting, the background, the character development. Uh Kidner is one of the premier wisdom literature writers who can, in a very short set of words, uh, I often say, I wish I could write like Derek Kidner. Uh, I wish I could take, you know, 10 pages of longhand and he can say it in four sentences. And he just is a master of these one, two, three lines, synthetic phrases that sum up a tremendous amount of material. So Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R, and we'll post a PDF. Hannah will tell you how to get to that because I don't remember HTML addresses. It is what?
3: (laughs) michaelincontext.com forward slash leadership process.
4: And we'll put some Kidner links up there. But I cannot encourage you enough, if you're a person studying the Bible on your own, buy a Kidner commentary and uh, read through it. Don't be deceived on the brevity of what he writes because he packs a lot in in a very uh, short span and he's theologically spot on. So I love him. Awesome. Okay.
3: And my second question for you is, you know, we've gotten a lot of really fun feedback from folks. They're really enjoying the series. They're enjoying your teaching elements. They're enjoying the conversations that you're having with folks about practical implementation of these leadership traits, but what has been the most enjoyable part for you? What have you really enjoyed about putting this series together?
4: Well, no question, when you and I talk to these folks, we call them subject matter experts, and I I don't want to say there's a favorite because I love all of them, but every time I hear Janet Parshall, my (laughs) mouth just hangs open going... Boy, what I would give for 25 cents of your brain matter. Yeah, <laughs> the, the way she can articulate and put together facts, and it's almost like a stream of consciousness. That said, it, it exciting to see the body of Christ mm. because different people have different gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, our dear friend Ralph Weitz often says, I can't do what you do, Michael, and you can't do what I do. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a great humility lesson for any leader. To understand the body is far more important than the individual mm. but God uses people but uh, that's been probably the most fun to me is just talking to our subject matter experts and some of the b-roll that we don't <laughs> put on the broadcast <laughs> of course we get off on these different crazy topics uh, but uh, that's been the most fun for me how about you you got to edit all this and listen to all this <laughs> stuff.
3: no I've enjoyed it I listening to the teaching elements. There's always something that really hits home and convicts uh, at that moment, you know, always timely. And man, I I love the interviews and and hearing these folks talk about what's in their wheelhouse and how they lead and how they serve. And uh, like you said, it's the body of Christ. It's really a beautiful picture and encouraging to think we've all been uniquely wired by our creator to be who he designed us to be. And the more we lean into who God is and to his word, uh, I think the better we understand who we are and, and who who he has designed us to be. So I think it's it's been fun and encouraging for me personally.
4: So today we're going to jump into chapter 9, which is quite a transition from chapter 8, which you remember, of course, Ezra has come up. To read the law, it's been a long day. There's been, my theory, uh, many teachers who are explaining the passages to the people in smaller groups. It's a holy day. They're sad. They're repentant. They're remorseful. They lay faces to the ground from conviction. And uh, there's a rallying cry from Governor Nehemiah who says this is a day not to grieve. It's a day that's holy so chapter 8 ends with this solemn assembly, with Ezra reading, their daily studying, they're in the middle of the Feast of Booths, and in chapter 9, we get a timestamp stamp, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting, and sackcloth, and with dirt upon them.
5: And so let's hear this from our good friend Jason. Now on the twenty-fourth day of this month the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed, and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea, Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them, and made a name for yourself, as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths, like a stone into raging waters, and with a pillar of cloud you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and laid down for them commandments, statutes and law. Through your servant Moses you provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger, You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, And you did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal, and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt, and committed great blasphemies. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted them to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars in heaven, and you brought them into a land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, Olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, and were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient, and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets, who had admonished them, so that they might return to you and commit great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors, who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion, and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them he shall live, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years, and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion you did not make an end of them, or forsake them, For you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the Great, the Almighty, and the Awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all of your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, however, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions, with which you have admonished them. But they and their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Now because of all this we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed documents are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. One of the
4: first points of course is worship. Verse 3 again, they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. This is the 6-hour service. And the timing of this again is interesting because we're coming off the heels of the feast of booths. When Jason read this passage, one of the things I hope you caught and what I would encourage you to do going forward, when we read prayers like this, the second person pronoun, you and your referring to God, depending on your Bible, may or may not be capitalized. Now, not to digress too far, but I'm not in favor of these translations and Christian books that are dropping the divine pronoun uh, and putting a lowercase you or he And it's not something sacrosanct, it's because the reader doesn't always know who the you is referring to. So if you're reading a narrative, and there's a lowercase y-o-u, do we know if that's God or a person? It's hard sometimes, even for me reading a text, to say, wait a minute, what's the antecedent? Who is the referent? So that's one reason, again, I prefer the NASB Bible. They hang on to the divine pronoun, so you is going to be capitalized when it refers to God, the Holy Spirit, Christ, and so forth and so on. That's as a sidebar. So back to the prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And then your glorious name, you alone, you have made the heavens you are the Lord. You found his heart faithful, referring to Abraham. You have fulfilled your promises, for you are righteous. On and on this goes. And if you were to see a picture of my Bible, you would see all of those second-person pronouns circled in pencil. So when I come back to read this chapter, I don't miss what I might miss if I just read it quickly. This is a prayer about God and his work, which As a sidebar lesson, worship is vertical. Worship is not about me and my, what I call, horizontal Christianity. Nothing wrong with praying for my life and my marriage and my children and my family and my grandchildren and my job. All good things. We're encouraged to do that. But I believe the percentages have changed, and we spend far more time focused on ourselves and horizontal Christianity than vertical Christianity, if I might make that distinction. So this prayer is an extraordinary prayer from the Levites, the priests, from Nehemiah, probably Ezra involved in this as well. But the review of Israel's history is extraordinary. Let me give you just a couple of insights on this passage. In verse 7 when he says, You are the God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. I will argue that the Abrahamic covenant is one of the most important places for Christians to understand their Bible because it is in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This Abrahamic covenant, also called a unilateral covenant, God makes with Abram. Now, technically speaking, listen to me carefully. Abram doesn't have a choice. (laughs) Now, he can disobey. He can wander. He can do some things. God is going to do this with him and through him. I changed the translation just a tiny bit on verse 2. Most of your Bibles say, and so you shall be a blessing. Literally, the text is saying, and you will be a blessing, meaning God is going to use him to bless the world. So from the Abrahamic covenant, technically he's Abram here, until the coming of Christ, this covenant hasn't changed. I also find it fascinating that he leaves his country, his relatives, his father's house, and he's going somewhere that God hasn't told him. Abram will, quote, wander, quote, a long time before he gets to the so-called promised land. This journey from Abram out of Egypt is leaving the moon god worship heritage of his father, God's revealed himself to him. Abraham believed God, and he was reckoned righteous. So we've got an extraordinary precedence here. Back to Nehemiah, it's important to understand he's given this vertical declaration. You're glorious. You're exalted. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens the heaven of heavens. You made the earth. You made the seas. He's reviewing creation. And then in verse 7, he speaks of Abram. The importance of Abram, the Abrahamic covenant, cannot be overstated because it's through Abram that you and I come to know who God is, come to know who Jesus is. He made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Gergesite, and to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise. What an important reminder to go back and remember God's faithfulness. Now you and I may feel very far removed from Abram, but we need to be reminded. You know, I think it's striking today with these uh, tests where you can spend a hundred bucks and change and you can take a swab and send it off to a company and they send you back this uh, pretty fancy email with uh, charts and graphs and tell you what your origin is, what percentage you are of this, that, and the other. And um, be that as it may, whether you do it or not, spiritually speaking, those who trusted in Christ and Christ alone are literally theological and spiritual descendants from the covenant that God made to Abram. For through him the world would be blessed. And that, of course, sets up the entire lineage for the coming of Messiah, no matter what people groups may have been uh, enemies around them in this whole land deal. He continues, you are righteous. One of those biblical words, God always does the right thing in the right way in the right time, and at the end, all will be made right. We don't see that well from the horizontal lens. Nehemiah is reminding them of this rich history, reminding them of what God has done. Whenever scripture reminds us, why? Because we forget. We all forget. Verse 10, you perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. You knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name For yourself, as it is today, you divided the sea for them. They passed through the midst of it. Their pursuers you hurled into the depths. In a pillar of cloud, you led them by day. The review of what Nehemiah is accomplishing is amazing because even though these Israelites are far removed from the Exodus, those stories would have been told. They would have been told and cherished by their children and their children's children to remind them of the ten plagues, the darkness plague, the death of the firstborn, the salvation of the firstborn that were under the blood, the ritual of Passover, which was to be a perpetual memorial. Why? Don't forget the idea of a memorial. Memorialize it so you won't forget. And in just a few short stanzas, he is reminding them, of the darkness plague, the locusts, the frogs, the hail, on and on and on, all these plagues that they endured, the water turning to blood. These are all memories of the signs and wonders that God did to save his people. And then he simply says, you pass through the sea. He doesn't delineate the parting of the Red Sea. He mentions the destruction of the army. He moves very quickly and with the pillar of cloud you led them by day and the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. I often think of that and try in my sanctified imagination. If you were in the wilderness, you've left the abundance of the Egyptian Fertile Crescent, uh, the the triangle there of, of water Incredible livestock, incredible food, when they long for the leeks and the pots of meat, you know, because it was available. Now they're in the desert. Now they're wandering. And they have three things they have a cloud by day and night, they have manna, and they have water as God allocates it. So if you want to strip it all away, basically God says, I'm going to take you into the wilderness. You're going to have water, manna, and me. Because that cloud was God's presence, shading them under the stinking heat of the day, warming them under the cool temperatures of night, all their wandering years. And Nehemiah and Ezra are reminding them. Well, he continues the history. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws good statutes, and commandments. Now, each of those is worthy of your own study. We read these words very quickly, but ordinances, laws, statutes, and commandments all had a different weight and meaning. We think of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, the so-called Decalogue, ten, Ten Laws primarily, but there was much more given to Moses. And here's another example where Scripture expands that during that time on the mountain. Then he says, you made known your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and laws. I find it intriguing that in all this passage, he's going to talk about Sabbath, Shabbat. As we've talked before in the broadcast, one day off, and I would encourage you to, from your normal routines, your work, your email, up early, up late, Meetings galore, phone calls, conference calls, text messages that have to do with what you do for a living. Do you trust God that you can work six days, take a break from it all, and that it will still be there tomorrow? I tell people all the time when it comes to email, it's going to be in my inbox tomorrow. And if I don't get to it and someone says, Did you read my email? I don't lie. I don't say, uh, yeah, I read it, or no, I didn't, or, or whatever. I just say, I have a lot of email in my inbox. Forgive me if I have not read yours yet. It's really difficult to keep up with the amount of information we have today. And if it's really an issue, you know what? They'll pick up the phone and call me. I guarantee it. So the day of rest is the choice to say, I'm going to stop from my labors, and I'm going to trust God. No matter what, I'm going to trust God uh, more than me working seven days a week, 80, 90 hours, 100 hours a week. Well, he continues, you provided bread from heaven from them for hunger. You brought forth water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to enter the land implied in order to possess and so forth. I already mentioned water, manna, and Him. Then the prayer changes. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn, and they would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen, and they did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Now, this again is worthy of an entire message and much study on your own. But what is the failure? The fathers failed to teach the children. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. That was the primary role. You ensure that your children understand the law rising up, sitting down, getting up, laying down, going out, coming in, touching the doorpost on your wrist, on your forehead. The picture was the law of God throughout your whole life. And it was the father's job to teach, instruct, and lead his children. But the fact that they refused to listen was the father's failure. And then, of course, the children are not going to know the stories. They're not going to know the history of their salvation. And they're going to be enamored and allured to think that they've been in slavery 400 years, they come out of slavery, and they're coveting right away, and they'd rather go back to the pots of meat and leeks and onions and be enslaved than to go through a journey where God's going to take them to a new land. But praise God, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Can I somehow put my arm around your shoulder and say, God forgives you? He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding. And there's our word in chesed. We've talked about it before. God's loyal, loving kindness. He loves to be loyal to his covenant promise and his chosen people. His people and his promises. God's character. He loves to be loyal to those things. He's gracious to you. He's compassionate toward you. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness, and he won't forsake you. No matter what you've done, no matter how horrific, no matter what your past may be, we're all broken, we're all limping, we're all wounded, we're all deaf and blind, and we've made horrific decisions. Our hearts are corrupt and evil. This nonsense that your heart can be pure and you can transform it and all this, that's just a lie. We are bound as fallen creatures in a fallen world, in a fallen context, and we think about self, self-preservation, money, sex, and power, turn our head. That will be a struggle all of our lives until we're in glory. He forgives. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's loving, kind, and he won't forsake you. Maybe that's all you needed to hear. Nehemiah chapter 9 Verse 17, go look at that verse, dwell on that verse. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal. Many times in scripture it talks about idols, and the language is pretty consistent. They made for themselves. Think of the rich irony. Let's make a God for ourselves. Let's make this thing our God, and we'll worship it. God made them, they make God. And that's the ultimate ridiculous irony that we find in idolatry. And they said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Again, the divine pronoun, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not lead them by day to guide them on their way, the pillar by fire to light the way where they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna, You did not withhold from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you provided for them in the wilderness. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. On and on the passage goes. You, 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 you. So what's this prayer doing? It's a vertical prayer acknowledging Yahweh Elohim's providential care amidst their sin, their idolatry, their stubbornness their stiff-necked nature, aren't we all? And yet he's still loving, he's still compassionate, he doesn't forget. Now he's going to turn them over to discipline. Obviously they've come back from captivity, so this is fresh on their mind, but the prayer continues with what God did in the land, what he did to fortified cities that they were outnumbered. They ate their full, they inherited vineyards, They inherited cisterns. They did not hew. Uh, They grew fat. God took care of them. But alas, they were disobedient. They rebelled again. So this cycle, we see it again and again and again. And then it gets even more tragic because God sends prophets. And they're reminded in this prayer, you killed your prophets who admonished you so that they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors and oppressed them. And we see this cycle of sin. Of course, we saw it in the book of Judges in great detail about Israel's sins until things get completely miserable and out of hand. And then some group cries out to the Lord in their affliction, and then God listens, quote, listens, sends a judge, a deliverer, The cycle repeats. The judge delivers them. He helps them to some measure. And then when things get sort of rosy and they're going okay, they fall back into the cycle of sin, rejecting God. God brings adversity. He brings enemies upon them. He means calamity. They finally cry out for God. He sends yet another deliverer. And this cycle goes all the way through uh, many times in the book of Judges. And we're seeing that same pattern here. In Nehemiah, in this prayer. Well, the prayer continues about how he admonished them when they didn't listen to him, how he reminded them about their ordinances and man's stubborn toward them. He's stiff necked, he doesn't listen. Verse 30 However, you bore them for many years and admonished them by your spirit. Interesting, by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear, they wouldn't listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. He returns to this theme earlier in the prayer. Now, here's the request. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps his covenant and lovingkindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you. Think about this prayer. We deserved it all. It's miserable. We've got a remnant now. They don't know what they don't know. I'm trying to lead them back to the place where your name was established for them to worship you. In all this, don't let us and don't let hugh not that he has, forget the hardship which has become on us, kings our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to the day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. And you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Verse 33 is another one worth your attention. How many of us have had injustices happen to us. Things that were patently wrong, completely wrong, didn't matter. Lie, lie, Slander, treated unfairly, lost a promotion, lost a commission, let go without cause or reason, suffered health issues, been diagnosed with inoperable cancer, lost a child, lost a spouse, been through a horrific divorce, been hurt, fallen people in a fallen context. It's a broken system. He's dealt faithfully and we've acted wickedly. We have to always come back to that baseline. I don't remember the first place I ever heard it, but I've repeated it many times. The ground at Calvary is level. There are no men and women at Calvary, no young people at Calvary, that were a little better than someone else. I believe I told you the story about General Reno, whom we have heard from. General Reno dealing with some health issues at Walter Reed and his surgeon coming in saying a cancer is no respecter of person. Same is true of sin. Sin is no respect to a person. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. So this isn't a comparison or a contest on who's better or who's a worse sinner. All of us have acted wickedly. We've all been unfaithful. But God is completely faithful and never wicked. But the prayer continues, verse 34. For our kings and our leaders and our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. This is very pertinent for today. Uh, The debate between our country, between red and blue states, between who's a president, between who should have been the president, elected officials, corrupt officials, I've never seen our country in such a vitriolic, divisive unkind, evil uh, back-and-forth banter from left, right, center, libertarian, you name it, whatever label you want to use uh, to call it out. This is nothing new. Nehemiah is recalling kings, leaders, priests, fathers who didn't keep your law. Now, I'm not a proponent of the theology that says, We should only have Christian leaders in high places with a dominion view that if we do that, then Christ will return. Yes, I'd love to see Christian men and women in places of power, position, influence, even, believe it or not, in politics. But be that as it may, when they fail, when they're unfaithful, when they don't keep the law, and let's just talk about the law of the land, when they're immoral, when they take money, when they are corrupt officials. Listen to what the prayer says. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today, as in the land in which you gave our fathers to eat the fruit and bounty. Behold, we are slaves in it, It's abundant produce is for kings for whom you set over us because of our sins. They rule our bodies over our cattle as they please. So we're in great distress. So the prayer is an interesting combination of a review of history, of a reminder of their past. No matter what they've done, God's still there. He's not forsaken them. Yes, they have endured discipline. Yes, they have been punished. Yes, they've been exiled, but he's still there. And in your life and mine, whether we are leaders, leading other people, shepherding people, whether we're just working stiffs, whether we're just trying to be faithful as a husband, a wife, a daughter, or a young adult, uh, whether we're trying to be faithful in whatever station in life we may be, God's concerned with you individually in your faithfulness. And think about this. Israel's kings, leaders, priests, fathers did not keep the law. They were idolaters. They fought each other. They imposed usury. And this prayer comes after the reestablishment of the wall, the reading of the law, this incredible worship experience, seven days of the Feast of Booths. And this is the prayer we're reading. Could not be more pertinent for today. So we live in a fallen context. We're fallen people. We have leaders. We have Christian leaders who have failed us. We have Godly men and women who have failed us doesn't give us an excuse to live in idolatry or sin or licentiousness or immorality or taking advantage of others. It is a reminder that we're all clay. We all have clay feet. And it comes back to God is faithful. God is not wicked. You and I get to choose by God's word and God's spirit to follow faithfully, to live righteously, even among people, and can I say, even among leaders who are wicked, selfish, idolaters, that's the call of the believer. You and I stand on our own feet before Christ. I spend a great deal of time talking to people that live with chronic pain, especially who are facing back surgeries and this kind of thing. And the number one thing I tell them is you must be your own advocate, meaning, the doctors can do their best surgeons can do their best pain management clinics may or may not help you your husband or your wife really can't do that much for you you have to be your own advocate you stand before your situation determined what can I do to get help what can I try should I have surgery should I try this, that, the other any of us who've dealt with health issues have this dilemma it's a good spiritual parallel you stand before Christ on your own two feet. Doesn't matter what your parents did or didn't do. Doesn't matter how evil or wicked your mom or your dad or a relative or a neighbor was to you. You are accountable before God. Calvary has level ground, and you and I get to choose will I be faithful? Will I live righteously by God's word, through God's spirit, no matter what others do? That's your choice. The great news is He's gracious. He's compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he is abounding, abounding, overflowing, pouring over in loving kindness. That's who he is.
3: Obviously, a prominent theme in this chapter is the importance of prayer, the power of prayer, how we need prayer. We mentioned prayer earlier in this series, but as you and I were talking more about what things we really need to be highlighting about the leadership process, we kept coming back to prayer. And when we were brainstorming, who should we have a conversation with about prayer? Two women immediately came to your mind. Tell me about them.
4: Johnny's written over 50 books, uh, many of them dealing with suffering I would encourage you to take a look at her Johnny and Ken, The Untold Love Story, which came out in 2013. Talk about a marriage and what it's like to be married to a person who's disabled. It's an extraordinary accounting, very transparent accounting. But Johnny is one of those people, when you're around, she's going to make you pray. (laughs) You're going to stop, and uh, on more than one occasion, she and I have, wait, wait, we need to go back and pray for this or that. So when we ask Johnny about prayer, you're going to be surprised where she appeals to right away.
0: Well, I look to Nehemiah. In fact, I've got the first chapter open right here, and you've got to look at it. When Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been burned and broken down, it says in verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I think good leaders should weep. They should mourn over uh, the things that break God's heart. And Nehemiah did that. And for some days it says he mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord of heaven. His prayer is recorded all the way through verse 11, in which he asked God to grant him favor before the king. It's a very ambitious prayer. I think real leaders pray ambitious prayers. They pray big prayers. Someone has said that you cannot pray a prayer so so big that God would not hope that you would pray it bigger still. And then, what, four months later, and as many prayers as I am sure— probably filled those months, Nehemiah finally gets a chance to go before the king, and I love this, I love this. When the king notices his sad face and he asks him what he wants, he says in verse four, Then I pray to the God of heaven. And I answered the king. I can't believe that like Nehemiah had already spent four months in prayer. But right right before he responds to the king, he prays again, as if he hasn't prayed enough. And and to me, this is so remarkable. But what is more remarkable is that all this prayer expanded its vision and its confidence. He says to the king, I want to go build walls. You know, he's, he, he was a wall builder. Let me go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he says to the king, who for all we know could have had his head for such a request. And so I think the point here is when leaders spend time, I mean a great deal of time, look at Nehemiah, four months, Time and prayer, they become better leaders, they become more confident leaders, they become visionary leaders. Wow, that that's
4: powerful. As Johnny and I continue to chat, one of my pet peeves, and it's personal as well as public, is when we say the same things every time we pray. It's like we have 15 synonyms that we use when we pray. So I asked Johnny, how does a leader cultivate a richer, more robust prayer life?
0: Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, just like the disciples asked the Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. You know, we never get over that. I think every time before, every time we go before the Lord, uh, we we have to ask the Holy Spirit, teach us how to say this, teach us what needs to be prayed about, Um, teach us, show us how to pray. And so when we pray uh, for a friend who just got a a diagnosis of cancer, you just don't pray that he gets healed. No, you pray that you pray the sorts of things the Holy Spirit wants you to pray about, like um, that his faith will be strengthened, that he will keep his hopes bright, that he won't cave into despair, that God will dispel any anxious feelings. And we could go on and on, praying about a whole list of emotional and spiritual things rather than just physical things. Just, oh God, please heal him physically. That's an easy prayer to pray. Hard in that it's asking a lot. But you have to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you concerned about, Jesus? What do you want prayed about over this person? And I tell you what, Jesus will take the spiritual road every time over the physical road. He will be so much happier if that friend of yours who has cancer, he'll be so much happier if that friend, if his faith gets refined, if his hopes get brighter, if he becomes a man of peace, a man of confidence, a man who is strong in his witness, to nurses at the chemo clinic, that, that's the kind of man the Holy Spirit once prayed for like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it helps to um, to memorize Scripture, because when we pray using Scripture, we are echoing God's words right back at him. And we all know that God's words are a lot more powerful than ours. Mm-hmm. And so we look for a verse of scripture that that embodies what we're trying to get across before the throne of God. And we use it, I think, as Spurgeon once said, we, we use it as a mighty battering ram to break open the floodgates of heaven so that God in his mercy will pour out blessing upon blessing over that for which we're praying. So Memorizing Scripture, it's a great wellspring for wonderful words in prayer.
3: So the second person that came to mind for you when thinking about people who really pray is a friend named Barbara Brand. Tell me about Barbara.
4: We met Spencer and Barbara Brand in 1993. I suspect they were on staff also with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now known as Crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, Barbara lives with uh, multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And she spends a lot of time alone in the dark in chronic pain. And she's one of those people, your mom and I often talk about, we take our shoes off when we talk to Barbara. <laughs> but she has cultivated such an intimacy with the Almighty, the way she handles pain and isolation. And her prayer life is something to behold. Mm. So, one of the questions I asked her was what do you say to people when they say something like, you know, I pray and nothing happens?
1: First of all, um, I would want to make sure that they had a living connection with God. I would want to make sure that, that they had uh, trusted Christ to be their Savior and that they, that they had that assurance that, um, that he had heard that prayer That's the most important prayer you can pray, your most important first prayer you can pray. He had heard that prayer. He had answered that prayer. And that he was in my life. He was a part of me. And he was living within me, and I would have eternal life. So it's like, well, God's already answered, you know, a tremendous prayer that you've prayed. But I think the other thing, too, is that there are many prayers that we pray that we don't see as answered. I think often of of those passages in Hebrews where it talks about those people of faith who prayed and they did not receive the promise. And that's where praying in faith comes. You, you pray, you trust that God is hearing your prayer because you are a child of God. And, and the whole purpose of prayer is growing in that my love relationship with him and trusting him that he will do what I've asked him to do. I think I would also ask the person if they know that what they are praying is according to the will of God, because he's given us many things that we can pray that are according to the will of God. And he's promised us that if we pray according to his will, he hears us in whatever we ask. And so we know that we have those requests that we have asked of him, if we pray according to his will. So I would want to help that person really focus on what are their prayers and are they according to the will of God and if they are if they're based in scripture well then they need to just step out by faith and trust in spite of what their feelings might be telling them that God is answering their prayer there are two people in my life Michael and you know who they are who are very far from God right now they are antagonistic Toward him. Um, they grew up initially believing in him, but they have gone far away from him in thoughts and perspective and lifestyle. And yet, there have been many promises that I have wanted to cling to that are in the scripture. And trusting that uh, he has not only heard my prayer, but he has answered. Uh, there's a wonderful story of George Mueller who had prayed for. You probably know this story better than I do. It was either four or five people to all come to know the Lord. And it was something like, like one came to the Lord in, you know, 10 years after that, one came 20 years after, one came 30 years after, and that it wasn't until after George Miller's death that the last person came to Christ. So it gave me hope that I might, again, not see those answers, That does not mean that I should stop praying. I should keep on praying. In Luke 18, verse 1, where Jesus encourages the disciples that they should always pray and not lose heart. So Jesus knows that we are susceptible to losing heart. I mean, that's natural for us. We will lose heart because we always look for what is visible rather than what is unseen. But Jesus continues to encourage us to just pray for those things trusting that we have been heard and that He will answer us in His way and in His timing.
4: So uh, you and I both have friends who are, have gone through very difficult things. They've prayed, and the outcomes have not gone the way they've prayed. Maybe uh, a husband left a wife, a wife left a husband, maybe you know something that was irreparable. Um, how would you encourage them? Because you know, Nehemiah is 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 doing an impossible task, humanly speaking. And his prayer, we know from chapter one to two, it was probably four months in the making. And so the the tenacity he had as a leader, um, and in 52 days it was accomplished, but then within a year it's all going to pot. So -hmm. so it's just, (laughs) we pray by faith. As you said, we may not see the answer in our lifetime, but what about those irreparable things that have happened to people we know?
1: That's such a great question. I I believe that, once again, God encourages us to go back to His Word and there are promises that we can, that we can cling to and commands that we can cling to that bring re- reward, um, perhaps reward, rewards that we would not have seen to be as rewards and not the specific rewards that we were looking for. For example... First Thessalonians 518 says, and this is the will of God, that you, in everything you give thanks, in everything you give thanks, for this is God's will for you. So I might think, okay, well, this person or that person has left me. I have this child is completely out in left field. I don't know if they're suicidal. I don't know if I'm going to get a phone call in the middle of the night that they're, um, you know, strung out on drugs someplace or they're pregnant now. Uh, Lord, what do you want me to do? He wants me to thank him by faith in the situation. Uh He wants me to thank him for who he is. It's like, okay, so what do I thank him for then in this particularly horrible situation where I am depressed or heartache or my dreams are shattered? You say, Lord, I thank you that you are God. Go back to the character of him. I read the Psalms. Lord, thank you that you in your loving sovereignty... And I always love to attach that, that adjective loving, it, loving sovereignty are allowing this to happen. I do not understand it. Everything within me bucks against it. I, I cry out to you in anguish, but Lord, you have called me to thank you. So I'm going to bank my faith on your character. I'm going to trust that, that uh, you are not asleep. Uh, you know that this is happening and I'm going to cling to everything I can discover in your Word that tells me about you. That's what I would go back to. Uh, it might not mean the husband is ever going to come back to you. It doesn't mean that your child is going to become unpregnant. Um, the situation might not ever change. It might even grow worse. But the one thing that never changes is who God is. And that's what I look at Nehemiah. You know, you said the word tenacity. He had tenacity. It, it did not it did not change. He continued to be a man of tenacity and perseverance. He did not quit, even though his circumstances changed. And I believe that when we are having that living connection with God, He's given us this power to remain faithful, not within our own human means, but we can choose to remain faithful to believe in who He is when everything around us might be just falling apart. He never changes. The one thing I I love to always say to myself is that um, in my situation with MS, every day is different. I might be paralyzed one day, I might not be able to speak the next day, things might get worse and worse and worse. um, Very unpredictable. Or The next day I can wake up, like today, and I'd be able to speak with you on the phone, or there are months when I can't even go speaking with people. So it's very unpredictable, but the beautiful thing is that God is predictable. I can always predict that God is lovingly sovereign. I can always predict that He is powerful. I can always predict that He has good for me. I can always predict that He will never fail in His promises. That's what centers me, and I think that that's what can really center each of us. We can fall back on who He is.
4: You've told the story to me a number of times, and I've probably uh, told the story a hundred times about your analogy when you uh, have what you would at some point call an episode when you're in bed and uh, sound or touch or light or anything is just excruciating, and you say you have three things in the bottom of a dark tunnel.
1: Mm-hmm. Me and pain and God. Mm-hmm. Me and pain and God. I think in recognizing that pain, that has brought me new realizations of, of who God is also, because it's caused me to think more upon, upon the pain of what Jesus endured for me. And in many ways, then, my pain has not become so much of a limitation, but it's become a gateway. It's become a gateway in learning to to understand Him more, to uh, enter into the fellowship of his sufferings in a way which I never imagined I would ever be called upon to do. And in entering into that fellowship of his sufferings, knowing that he knows I might, I might be completely isolated and alone and alienated. I might be completely in my room in the fetal position. I'm hearing everybody else in the kitchen laughing and having a great time and You know, acting like, you know, who is Barbara or who is mom? It's like I'm completely out of the picture. Yet the one that understands is Jesus. It always goes back to him. He was alone. He was isolated. He was alienated. There is at least one person who understands what I am going through and he is powerful and he is loving. And his hands aren't tied as far as being able to help me and what my circumstances are. That's always encouraged me. I've never felt alone in my room. He was—he's always been with. Me. And right now, I'm sitting in bed and, and I'm, I'm talking to you because I can't walk very well today. And so he's—he's he's right here with me. He's right here with us. And uh, I just thank him for that. That he—he's never away from us. He always understands.
4: When I hear people like Johnny and Barbara talk about their prayer life, I feel inadequate. Just candidly, I feel inadequate. And I marvel at Nehemiah's prayers throughout the book. I marvel at chapter 9 of how he prays. And what I would say is start where you are. Don't don't put these super Christian heroes up on pedestals because we're not supposed to. Uh, your relationship with Christ, mine is dependence, dependence on prayer. Barbara was so helpful when she talked about even in isolation, she's not alone because Christ is with her. Start where you are. You know there was that old A C T S acronym. Okay. I don't know who started it, but adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, adoration, vertical acknowledgement, pray about the attributes, the character of God. Confession, certainly of sin, but more in line of confessional. What do I believe about God? What does scripture tell me? There's a great chorus running around churches right now about I believe, and it's a good resource to remind ourselves what is true. Thanksgiving, spend time thanking God for things. We are are ingrates. We forget what he's done. And then supplication, uh, appropriately, is last. Ask about yourself last, a vertical alignment of adoration, of confession, of truth of what we believe, of thanking him for who he is and what he's done, and then supplication, A-C-T-S. It's a very good and simple way for you to spend just a little time in prayer. And the last thing I would add is don't use stained glass language. (laughs) Just pray as a conversation. And I love the comment about praying scripture back to God, which is why I love the Psalms. So if you can't figure out an ACTS way to pray, start reading the Psalms and read them as though you are saying them. You are praising, singing, lamenting, thanking, adoring God through the Psalms. And that will vertically align you, and it will remind us we are dependent on him, not just our own abilities, and We're not limited by our disabilities. Well, another
3: prayer resource that we've mentioned earlier in this series is Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer, and that is still up on our website, michaelincontext.com forward slash leadership process. We've got a few resources up there. We have a list of 21 traits of effective leadership. It is adapted from Donald K. Campbell's book, Nehemiah, A Man in Charge. But each one has some reflection questions for you to consider. How am I doing these things? this week, this month, uh, this season in my job as a leader. And the Kinboa book is also up there, as well as a new resource, our list of the elements that we've been pulling throughout Nehemiah, the leadership process, things we are identifying that every leader needs to think through and consider to be a good godly leader, applying biblical leadership principles thanks again for listening. We love getting your feedback. If you want to drop us a line at info at michaelincontext.com. Of course, you can always connect with us on Twitter or Facebook or our contact form on michaelincontext.com. We love to hear from you and we will be back next week.
2: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Scripture reading by Jason Germain.